All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, friend. This is an episode of Note to Self, but from when we used to be called New Tech City. Same good content, just the old name. Enjoy. This is New Tech City. I'm your host, Manoush Zamarodi, and this week we have a special guest. Sitting next to me in the WNYC studio is Charles Duhigg. Hi, Charles. Hi. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Now, Charles, I'm going to brag for you for a minute here. You are a reporter for The New York Times. You won a Pulitzer for explanatory reporting last year for your series about Apple, right? Right, right. The I economy and sort of Apple is this lens for the American economy. Okay, so you are also the author of The Power of Habit, which is about the science of habit formation in our lives, companies, and societies. Now, Charles, the book came out in 2012. It was on the bestseller list for 60 weeks, I think. But the reason why I wanted to talk to you about it now was because you didn't really go into technology specifically in your book, even though you know a lot about it. And especially since 2012, we have really seen technology embed itself in our lives, in our communities. For example, I just saw this statistic on Comscore that we now spend twice as much time on digital media as we did when you were writing the book. So today you're here to help us rethink our tech habits. It's actually fascinating what's happened in the last two years since the book came out in terms of how data has moved from something that corporations talked about and manipulated to something that people are using in their own lives, right, and using to shape their own habits. All of us carry around cell phones now that record how frequently we're walking or what we're eating and, and allow us access to sort of measure our schedules in ways that were previously completely impossible. And as a result, technology has become this creator of great habits and troubling habits in a way that even just two years ago didn't seem to happen. I want to start out with the basics of the habit loop that sort of works for each of us. So this is the basic insight over the last decade about the neurology of how habits work, which is that every habit has these three components. There's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start, and then a routine, which is the behavior itself, and then finally a reward. And what we've really learned is how important the reward is because that's how your brain latches on to a behavior and makes it something that feels effortless. And research shows that about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is a habit. And in each one of those behaviors, there is some type of reward that's causing your brain to say, oh, I like this. I get something satisfying out of this. So I'm going to make this a behavior that happens almost without you thinking about it. You've had a great breakfast and you walk past the break room and you see those donuts sitting on the table and suddenly you're craving a donut. That's not because you're hungry. That's because your brain has learned a certain habit and it's learned to expect the reward of that sugar. And once it sees and begins to anticipate that reward, it's very, very challenging to tamp and extinguish. So let's replace the donut with Facebook for a moment. 
Presumably, that's how we get into the Facebook habit. The reward isn't fat and sugar. It is seeing that somebody you hated in high school went bald. Absolutely. Like- <laughs> absolutely. Or even just finding something that distracts you for a couple of minutes, right? I mean, what's really interesting is if you look at so much of the media, online media that does well today, a lot of it is tailored to address a two-minute craving. Right, I need something between the memo and the email that I need to send. And so there's all these videos that, that do really well that are two minutes long, a clip from Jimmy Kimmel or something like that. Or articles that are you know 400 words long, listicles, because they deliver this quick little hit of diversion, of novelty. And if you think about Facebook, what's brilliant about Facebook is that it's novelty after novelty. You go down that stream, and if what you're looking at is boring – Just go down half a page and you're going to find something else. So here's what I don't get, though, right, is if we're talking about your habit loop, right now when it comes to social media, that hit that we're getting, reward, 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 we're not working for it, though. The time between doing something and being rewarded is being shortened in a way. Which is fantastic from a neurological perspective, right? So our brain loves to latch on to rewards that arrive quickly. In fact, one of the things that our brain does is it tries to figure out how much effort did I have to expend to get this reward? And if the reward comes very, very fast, if it comes relatively effortlessly, your brain actually assigns more reward value to it because it seems like something that it's getting a good deal on. It's getting a reward for cheap. Huh. It's like, you know, pay for one but get 10 or something Exactly. Like that. Exactly. Your brain loves to find deals like that. So think for a moment how Facebook arranges its rewards. It's taught us to expect novelty after novelty after novelty. This is true of every successful site, is that it it delivers something new, a fresh reward every couple of seconds. And so as a result, that's why if you're reading some article and suddenly you get bored by it or there's just a, a paragraph that isn't compelling, that's why you have this urge to go and click to the next link, to move down the page faster, is because our brain becomes trained at the pace of rewards and then begins to crave that pace. Is there any going back? Absolutely, absolutely. So it's really important here. These habits are powerful only when you're not aware of them. As soon as you begin making deliberate choices, the habit is incredibly delicate and falls apart. And so if you decide, I don't feel good about going through Facebook, I want to read something that's deep and meaningful, a whole New Yorker article, your brain will actually begin assigning more reward salience to the New Yorker article and less to Facebook. But the key is that you sort of have to make a deliberate choice about this. So I'm thinking about these new apps that are on the market for people. That It seems like habit apps have sort of become the new thing that's out there. I, I checked out a couple of them. Let's see. Lyft, Balanced, Way of Life. I just started running again for the first time in seven years. The app has kept me going, I have to say. And there's this weird electronic soothing voice. It's a man's voice who says, Great job. See you again in a couple of days. (laughs) I don't know why, but I do not want to let that man down. Like for some reason, he and I have a thing going on. Like, okay, I've personified him, but I I feel an allegiance to the app. I don't want to like abandon all the data that I've already put into it. I don't really know what the reward is other than like endorphins. I am running again, which is huge. 
it's a funny thing with tech, right? There's always like, oh, it's horrible. It's messing us up. But on the other hand, my gosh, it's really useful in terms of forming these habit loops way faster and more efficiently. Absolutely. And, and the voice it's that you're hearing over <laughs> yes. your headphones, that's not the reward, right? What the reward is, is it's the endorphins. It's the sense of accomplishment. It's the endocannabinoids that you feel when you start running. What's happening, though, is that you're able to transfer that onto this voice <laughs> into something that's tangible that you can point to. Because I mean, I will not turn it off before I hear the voice of Absolutely. Absolutely right. And it's really hard to point to endorphins. It's very hard to know when they're going up and when they're going down. But a voice, you know exactly what it is. And so your brain latches on to this very tangible thing that allows you to associate that with this feeling that you have. Many of the habits that are created by technology are fantastic, right? That's that's They make our lives better. Nobody carries around a smartphone because it makes their life worse. What happens, though, is that if you lose the – the foresight to kind of make choices around it, you start essentially acting without making decisions. And that's when a habit takes over. That's when it feels compelling in a way that you don't like. But habits are incredibly delicate, right? You associate that voice with a reward because you've chosen to, because on some level you know that it helps encourage you to run. But by the same token, you don't, for instance, gamble away all of your money and you don't play video games every single night. You have decided to exert some choice over what you assign reward values to. And what's really interesting is everything we know about neurology says simply making that choice actually changes your neurology around what's rewarding and what isn't. Okay, so we've been talking about individuals. We've been talking about me, as always, right, New Tech City listener? We're going to take a quick break. Coming up, more with New York Times reporter and Pulitzer Prize winner Charles Duhigg on the power of habit and, in this case, technology. We'll be right back. back. I'm Manoush Samarodi, the host of New Tech City. I'm with journalist and author Charles Duhigg. And Charles, I want to talk about this idea. The second part of your book is about the habits of companies as successful organizations. And I was just reading the website Recode, and they were talking about what they're calling the instant gratification economy. We want it. When we want it, we get it. Immediately with Amazon, the car comes from Uber. We order food delivery. Within an hour, it's there. And they sort of call it merging our online expectations with offline reality, that they're forming new habits for us. Have they read your book is what I'm wondering? <laughs> well, I think one of the things that they're doing is, they're, is that a number of companies are recognizing that by setting your expectations and then delivering on that expectation, that they can do something that feels magical. I mean, Uber's a great example of this, right? What Uber does is it sets up your expectations precisely right, and there's something that's incredibly gratifying. And we know this from neurological studies something that your brain finds very satisfying mm-hmm. about having your expectation met. And like so, I can look at my phone and I see the car moving on the little screen and then it comes and it's like, <gasps> my wish came true. Exactly. And you don't have to pull out your credit card at the end. One of the things that companies is, are doing is they're not necessarily providing that much more convenience as much as telling you exactly what they're going to deliver and then satisfying on that and removing ambiguity. A lot of studies show that when there is any ambiguity in any type of setting, it causes a certain amount of stress. And so when a company can say to you, this is exactly how it's going to work, that feels very comforting in a way that feels rewarding. So you write, we're we're scrolling, we're scrolling, we're scrolling through an iPad constantly, constantly. And it sort of reminds me of that action that people take when they're in a casino, this, you know, press the button, 
Did I almost win? No. Let's try again. Keep going. Keep going. And I, I can see the parallels there. The iPads next to the slot machines, that flowing, they're not so different. Not at all. And what's really interesting is that if you went back 20 years ago and you went into a Vegas casino, you would find very few slot machines. In fact, slot machines were basically this lost leader that were put on casino floors, as casino managers or owners would say, to keep the wives of high rollers occupied while they <laughs> lost all their money at blackjack. And then the largest slot machine company hired a guy from Sega Video Games to remake their machines. And one of the things that he did is he overhauled the reward schedule. He said that two things had to happen. Number one, there had to be a whole bunch of rewards that were almost subconscious or subliminal, right? As a result, there's a whole bunch of new noises that slot machines make. That There's lights that go off. And number two, what he did is, as we were discussing before, he came up with two reward schedules. One is expected. You win on average about every four and a half pulls on a slot machine. But the other is unexpected, these intermittent rewards that you can't anticipate. And that happens about one every 10 or 11 tries on a slot machine. One of the interesting things about Pinterest or about House or any of these websites or Facebook for that matter is that you came looking for one type of thing and all of a sudden you see an art piece that kind of interests you or you see an explosion of color totally. or you see this like really attractive guy sitting on something, right? Or a vase, like the most boring things, but ooh, that is the nicest vase I have ever seen. Good websites and the websites that are succeeding right now know this and they design themselves explicitly to try and deliver to you something that you did not expect because it's going to catch you off guards and it's going to essentially be more rewarding than it actually seems at first. So, I mean, like a casino, that's what these businesses are based on, right? They call it engagement or stickiness and the they make more money the longer that we stay on the website or the app. So it's sort of built into the fact that they have to create an addiction here or a habit, whatever you want to call it, in order to continue to survive, essentially. Companies and websites that are really good understand that you have to sandwich these new unexpected rewards in between things that are very comforting and familiar because it fulfills two types of rewards, the reward of novelty and also the reward of fulfilling expectations. That's why when you're looking at Pinterest or when you're looking at Facebook, there's so much of what you expect arrayed around what is new and novel. It's this combination that is very, very powerful, almost overpowering because you get into this flow. I mean, I just wonder if there's some sort of responsibility, though, that, that for the public good, there needs to be a discussion about how this happens. It seems like it has been going on for years, but and yet that's what sort of companies are built on now. I think that's right. But I think that what's going to happen is that there's going to be an emerging sophistication, right? I mean, I mean, we've seen this with all types of media, that basically when radio first came out, there was all this attempts to outlaw it particularly rock and roll, because there was a concern that people would lose their lives to listening to the radio. And there was actually data to back that up. There were all these studies that showed that when people started listening, that they couldn't turn off the radio. And then essentially a kind of maturation happened socially where people started saying, yeah, I like the radio. I like the songs, but I know how to control myself around them. I think the same thing is going to happen with websites. And I think, you know, that maturation that you're talking about sort of leads me to sort of this idea that we sort of started out with a habit, right? We use Google for everything. And as an exchange, we hand them our private data. We hand them our information. And suddenly in the last sort of year or 14 months, I guess it is, since the NSA revelations, we've started to question that. We've started to wonder, 
Is this a deal with the devil? But we haven't seen any mass lawsuits or any major defections. So I think what's happening is there's a basic transaction, which is that people are trading convenience for handing over their data, right? When I go and I use my credit card, it's so much more convenient than having to carry around cash. And the price that I'm paying is I'm handing them data on exactly what I bought to the credit card company. But the thing is that the victims are going to emerge. It might be things like the Target data breach, right, where all these people had to go replace all of their credit cards. And some people got charges and money stolen from them. There is going to be some cost and some maturation that occurs. And the issue is that the way that that maturation occurs tends to first of all happen among people who think about it. And then it tends to filter down very slowly to the rest of the population. And so what I think you'll find is that there's going to be a whole league of people who are better at resisting this, are better at making decisions around using their data and taking advantage of the system. And how can we get more people to be conscious of it so that they're in control and really can start making those choices? It makes me wonder. There was this great article talking about how they finally convinced teenagers not to start smoking was by telling them that the companies were manipulating them. And once teenagers felt manipulated, that's when they finally said no to cigarettes. I mean, Absolutely. Maybe that's the sort of campaign that privacy advocates need to, to really double down on. The issue right now is that when you're going onto Facebook, when you're, when you're using credit cards, when you're using loyalty cards, the manipulation seems very subtle because it hasn't been cast into high relief yet. And yet as we become more and more sophisticated and mature, the edges of that manipulation will become much more obvious and people will begin self-censoring and changing their behaviors as a result. We have to leave it there. Listeners, we hope that you will make New Tech City one of your healthy habits. It's audio on demand. Just go to newtechcity.org and click subscribe. It is free. You'll get more about how technology is changing us as humans. Thank you so much, Charles Duhigg, for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So his book, the bestseller, if you haven't read it yet, The Power of Habit. But check out the New York Times practically every day for more stuff (laughs) from him. Thanks again, Charles. Thank you. Thank you. 